Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. I want to welcome everyone who's joining us online, and I want to welcome our Tempe campus. So grateful and uh, for each of you, but just want to let you know that, that we love you. Uh, so thank you. Thanks for being here today. And, you know, before we get started, I'm sure... Like me, like me, many of you have been stirred in your hearts by what you have seen that's taking place. And I just want to take a moment for us to really uh, come together corporately, because I believe that God is stirring really a, a, a spirit of intercession for what's taking place in Afghanistan and, of course, in Haiti. But we received this message uh, today from the underground church in Afghanistan, and they asked that uh, we would pray for them to have strength and endurance they're continuing to lead Bible stories, prayer meetings, and evangelize during what you are seeing in the news. The Afghan church believes that the best days of the Afghan church are before them, and we will be witnesses to the greatest movement of salvations from, from the ashes of this catastrophe. They ask that we pray for them to be hidden supernaturally by the hand of the Lord like Jesus in John 8, 59, when Jesus disappeared in the crowd. They would be hidden in plain sight. Can you even feel the sense of boldness and courage? So could we just take a moment, church, could we just pray for, the, for the, what's going on in Afghanistan and in Haiti? I'm just going to ask that you just link your hearts, those of you joining us online. Let's just begin to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the commander of angel armies. Father, right now we lift up Afghanistan to you. We lift up what's taking place in Haiti. And God, we ask for your supernatural presence to begin to permeate the atmosphere. Lord, we pray for your hand of protection over each and every person that's there, over every child, over every woman, over the church that is being persecuted. God, we pray for your comfort, for your protection, and we pray for boldness, for the church to rise up at this time, God, for them to begin to have open ears and open eyes Lord, that you would give them strength for those that are having to run to the hills. Lord, that you'd be with them, that you would be strong and steadfast for them. Lord, we pray for those that are persecuting. God, like Paul, that the scales would fall off their eyes, that they'd have a supernatural visitation from heaven. Lord, pour out your spirit upon Afghanistan. Right now, Lord, we lift up Haiti and ask that you would come and bring healing and hope. Lord, we pray for every worker that is going into each of these places, God, that you'd be with them, that you'd give them endurance and capacity and wisdom. We pray for our world leaders, God, for wisdom from heaven. Send supernaturally appointed people across their paths to awaken their hearts, to open their hearts to what is taking place. God, we thank you that you're present. Would you bring heaven to earth right now? In Jesus' name, amen. Can I get an amen to that? I want to encourage you to continue to just be praying. It's the power plan of the church, and I just believe that this is a moment in time where we stand, that God is stirring something inside of us to rise up into the fullest stature of what he's called us into. Do you believe that? Well, I am excited to be here tonight, and uh, we are continuing our series, Shame, Friend, or Foe. Tonight will be our third installment, but in the spirit of what I just read to you, from a group of people that are locked arms with Jesus, I just, I want to just read this to you. In all the triumphal stories, the hero must go into the unknown, into an unexplored territory, and deal with a new great challenge and take great risks. In the process, something of himself must die or be given up so he can be reborn and meet the challenge. This requires courage. In week one, I mentioned to you the difference between soldiers and warriors. I had a friend who was telling me about uh, his service in the army that he said everyone comes in a soldier, but not everyone comes a warrior. And, and today, I'm, I'm going to ask that you grab a hold of a warrior mindset. Grab a hold of what God wants to do in our hearts in this place, because we need tender hearts, and we need tough hides. We don't need the opposite. We don't need tough hearts and tender hides. We need to be able to receive what God is speaking to us because he's created us for greatness. He's created us to handle great responsibility. 
for us to overcome adversity and to face great challenges. Because as you know, life is beautiful, but life is hard. Jesus told us in John 16, in this world, it's possible maybe you'll have trouble. That's not what he said. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. That takes courage. That takes a warrior mentality. Take heart. I've overcome the world. The title of my message tonight is Sons Must See Shame Accurately. Sons Must See Shame Accurately. Now, sonship is the language used to describe in Scripture a certain kind of relationship. Now, men and women are sons, but God uses this specific language as spectacles for you and I to look through to understand the deep, meaningful relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. Now, the biblical concept of a son, the word literally means to build the Father's house. And we see over and over again that God uses this language for us. He uses it when he talks about Adam. Preston read that scripture in Luke 3.38 that Adam was, was the first son. He was a son of God. He also uses this language in Exodus 4 to talk about Israel. Let my sons go that they may worship me. So he uses specific language that we have to pay attention to. And oftentimes your Bibles will translate the word children. And that's okay. That's accurate. It's yes and. It's both things. But tonight, I want to not just have the alliteration. I want you to grasp a hold of something. Sons must see shame accurately. J.I. Packer is a theologian. He wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. The pattern throughout the Bible is one of a father-son relationship. Let's go through just a couple scriptures on this. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. Romans 8.14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8.15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Galatians 4.6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. 1 John 3, beloved, now we are the sons of God. I want you to get this concept here as we get started. Sons, those who build the Father's house. Now in week one, I shared a message titled, Created to be Shame-Free from the Enemy. We talked about God's original design. We talked about we're made in the image of God, that whatever God makes is good, that God clothed man in glory. He clothed man in honor, and that man felt no shame. He's the crowned creation, God's original design. Adam and Eve were confident. They were indeed connected to God, and they were creative. They were flourishing on the earth. This is how uh, you and I were created to operate on this earth. But then there was a detour that created disconnection. So Genesis 1 and 2 God's original creation, Genesis 3, a detour through disconnection. And it is the event that turned the world into a war zone. We talked about how Adam and Eve, who were forbidden to eat or touch this fruit, did so. They were were deceived by the enemy who said, you'll be like God. They were already like God. They were clothed in glory. And they made a choice, they made a decision to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of death or disconnection. And when they did that, something transpired. And the enemy came and he took what was released from that tree and he contaminated it and it wrapped itself around Adam and Eve and they began to feel defective and damaged what we've come to know and define in our world as shame. 
wasn't just some random unfortunate event that came out of some you know, primordial, primordial evolutionary soup. But this, this was the event that distorted and created disconnection. Man was robbed of intimacy and identity. So they cover, they hide, and then they shift their shame to blaming uh, Adam, Eve, Eve, the enemy. And so we see this simplistic pattern is carried out in our culture, in our day, in our age, where something takes place, the enemy whispers in our ear, gets us to disalign and disconnect from what God has said about us, who we are as sons and daughters of God, and it causes us to shrink back, it causes us to, to hold back from the created, connected, uh, confident individuals that God created us to be. And I made a statement, felt the Lord speak to me very specifically, and he said, shame is not an enemy to defeat. You're not going to defeat shame on this earth. It's an emotion to understand. An emotion, energy and information. And he went on to say, Satan did not create shame, I did. God created shame. That threw me for a loop. <laughs> as many of you might be thrown for a loop in hearing that. But remember, as I thought about it, Satan doesn't create anything. All he does is counterfeits and contorts and causes us to see things improperly. So this worldly, ungodly, satanic shame destroys. It's punitive. It makes us feel... Uh, when we're listening to that voice that we are damaged, defective, disgusting, and with it has come the, the predominant definition that shame is not that I just did something bad, but I am, I am bad. And then Preston went on in week two to talk about who's your daddy, right? Who's your daddy? And he said the goal of ungodly or satanic shame is to separate children for their father, to create orphans out of God's children. That's his favorite hobby. To get us to listen to his lies, he utilizes the trauma and the events of our lives, the decisions that we've made, the things that have happened to us, the things that didn't happen, that should have happened for us, and he whispers. He communicates in our ears, and we have heard those things, and it's caused us to lose out on what God has desired for us as sons and daughters of God to walk on this earth. The good news is, in John 14, 18, Jesus told us, I'll not leave you as orphans. And this is so huge at this moment of time. So coming back, sons must see shame Accurately, There comes a time when we need the exhortation of the Father's insistent, his authority to speak to us fully so that we might transform fully into the image that he originally designed, what he originally created us to be, for us to see that. He comes to challenge us, to push us, to refuse to allow us to drift uh, or become stagnant in this, this pool of deception that the enemy brings to us. And so, with that, we have to allow ourselves to open up our hearts. That Satan can't be the one who defines things. He is not the one who creates things. And if that is the case, if the enemy has utilized this contorted, contaminated shame to create such instability in us, to destroy us, then we have to allow ourselves to open up our hearts to the fact that God, Yahweh, he's the ultimate source and giver of honor, and he alone determines how shame and honor are to be defined, to be measured, and to distributed. And so, we're going to talk about godly shame. What is it? What is Godly shame. How did you come to understand shame? Now, I'll just interject here to give you a sigh of relief. We can use the word conviction. Oh, do you feel better? 
But we're going to see as I read through different passages that these two words are indeed the same. What we've come to know as the punitive, destructive force that the enemy has uh, counterfeited is not the same for what God has designed in his beauty and his goodness. So where did we get our definition of shame? I'm going to ask you just a few questions because it comes from culture. It comes from the enemy who distorts. It comes from our families of origin. But when your parents caught you doing something wrong, did you, did you feel like they viewed you as a failure or did you feel like they were disappointed because they knew you could do better? Thank you for answering. You can, you can silently just take that. When your parents disciplined you, did you feel bad about yourself or did you feel bad about what you'd done? It's impact on you and others. When you failed at something, uh, your parents, they urged you to try harder the next time or they reminded you that you were loved whether you failed or succeeded. When you were in trouble, did you avoid telling your parents at all costs or did you usually tell your parents? When your parents taught you how to do something, did you dread it because you knew they would be frustrated or impatient with you if you didn't learn it quickly enough? Or did you look forward to it because it was fun and you knew that your parents wouldn't expect you to get it right the first time? Now as an adult, when something's wrong, does talking to your parents make you feel worse or does talking to your parents make you feel better? Right, we've, we've received the definition based on experiences based on distorted communication, and definitions drive thoughts. Thoughts drive emotions. Emotions drive behavior. But if God created it, there must be beauty, value, and goodness in it. Even though the reality is before us, because we've come to know, as culture has defined it, and has dictated the definition, we have to leave some room for what God sees in it and the reality of his desire to not tear us down, but in fact, to build us up, to not be destructive, but to be constructive. So here it is. As, as I have pieced together every single passage that I can read on the subject of shame, here is the theological character of shame. Shame is the painful emotion that arises from an awareness that one has fallen short of some standard, ideal, or goal. Now, this is what makes it difficult. We do not live in a shame and honor culture. We live in a highly individualized culture in our Western culture. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're an island unto yourself, right? We live in a different culture than the majority of the world, which is why it makes uh, actually reading and comprehending scripture so difficult. I said that months ago, that one of the foremost translator who's, translators of the Bible who has been to 4,000 different ethnic groups says that Americans have the hardest time reading and grasping and understanding scripture because we do not live in the same types of environment. Uh, we do not live in the same communities of understanding that our lives affect others' lives. That we aren't just uh, making choices and decisions by ourselves, but our lives are affecting others. And choices have consequences and they're real. And choices affect community. They affect others. This is the Hebraic view of community that my life affects yours, my decisions affect yours. And they're able to perceive their actions from the perspective of community. I believe this is something that God wants to ignite in our hearts. We all know that Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there arises these moments in our lives uh, where there is pain. And pain has become something difficult for us to handle. And this shame that we're talking about that is godly is not for those who have been perpetrated against. Those on whom abuse 
and uh, discouragement has come through outside sources, this shame is reserved for those of us who have made choices that have fallen under the ideal and the standard of those of us who bear the image of God, of God's glory and God's honor. And God's desire for us is to see that decay and to remove it from causing dis-ease in our life, much like going to the dentist. I don't enjoy the dentist, but if there's decay, I need to get that decay removed so that I can be free from dis-ease in my life. This is God's desire for us. Salvation is a gift. Sanctification is a process. It's a big word, Brad. Here's what, what that simply means. Awaken to beauty. Awaken to beauty. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, it says this, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you've been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Hear the communal context in that. Godly shame, conviction, It is what we need to walk worthy of our calling as God's children. It is restorative. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture, everyone say all. All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now I'll admit, there is a thin line between ridicule and rebuke. But all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful to us. It's useful. Now, here's here's what we're going to look at. Paul's use of shame. Paul uses language that you're going to see is how we would probably shrink back just a little bit. Paul writes to uh, the church at Galatia. The church at Galatia is on the verge of apostasy. And Paul is writing to them, and I'm, I'm just going to read it because it's great, and I need you to just, I need you to get involved here in the text. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Make sense? He's in his face. Because he was to be blamed For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew. He separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Peter is, or excuse me, Paul is in Peter's face. Now, let's connect a couple of dots here. Do you remember what happened to Paul in Acts 9? He had a visitation from the Lord. He was persecuting Christians, and he has a visitation from the Lord. That's Acts 9. What happens in Acts 10? Peter, who is Jewish, also has a visitation from the Lord, and God calls Peter to do something pretty radical for Peter to go to the Gentiles, to go to to Cornelius' house. This happens before this writing. Now, in Acts 15, the council at Jerusalem has not yet taken place. But Paul is correcting with passion and frustration You could liken this to godly shame because Peter is stepping aside and these Judaizers, these individuals, what Paul calls agitators, these people that are coming in to try to take these Gentiles and make them Jewish, to get circumcised. But Paul has already met with James and Peter. He's met with the apostles to talk about the message that he was going to preach to the Gentiles. But Peter is creating confusion, and uh, Paul steps in with some serious language that's needed because he is trying to sever the Galatians from the Judaizers to regain allegiance to the one true gospel. 
It goes on in Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Dearly brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. It's a good word. So here, Paul's desire is to reform their thinking, that their thinking would be shaped in the mind and the imagination of Christ. Go, read it. Now, as language gets even more interesting as we look at 1 Corinthians. Now Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church that is marked by failure and schism. There is division. There is sexual immorality. There's issues over food, eating uh, food that's been given to idols. There is uh, his correction and conversation about the gathering, uh, the church, the believers, and conversation about re- resurrection. But let's, let's look at his language here. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Listen to his familial language in this. Then he writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 14. I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm not writing to tear you down or to destroy you. I'm not writing to humiliate you. I'm challenging you to see the errors of your ways. Consider the message and the beauty of the cross of Christ and come into alignment. See it. But then in 1 Corinthians 6, Five, he writes this, I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? What's going on, Paul? You're not writing to shame him? Now you're writing to shame him? You have to look at the context. The things that he writes uh, there, he then comes back, he's dealing with another issue, and I want you to lean in. Don't just take my word for it, read the text. Go home and look at what he is saying, but his heart, in this is not to humiliate, is not to tear down. He is trying to transform the readers to the mind of Christ, to the reality that they are image bearers of God, that they, by original design, carry God's image. And that image is one of honor and glory and goodness and beauty. First Corinthians six twelve. he goes on to say, you say, I'm not allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. So the Corinthian church is going crazy. They are like, we're free in Christ. Woohoo, let's do whatever the heck we want. Paul is reminding them, hold on. You're allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Not everything is healthy for you. I don't want to become a slave to anything. So he goes on, 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. There's confusion that's taking place. So the heart of godly shame, this awareness that there is a standard, there is an ideal, there is a place that God has put you and I into. We, the church, as brothers and sisters in kindness, both in grace and truth, we're called to help, to correct, and to rebuke. Not to ridicule, not to tear down, but the hope is to build up. In 1 Corinthians, you'll read that what's happening is there is one individual who's having sex with his stepmother. And Paul uses very strong language to basically communicate, disfellowship him from the church. You're going to create chaos in your midst. This is healthy. Now his desire is that he would be disfellowship that he would come to an awareness and grow in a revelation and understanding so that he could be restored. But there are times that in order to keep the bond of unity and the peace that God is asking for us to bring about godly shame 
so that people might step into the reality and fullness. Are you with me? One person is. Now, you remember when Nathan speaks to David in 2 Samuel 12, he does this. He brings correction. He brings shame. He does it in such a diligent way. He uses a story. He does not confront directly, but indirectly. He tells David a story. And David is outraged. And then Nathan tells him, you are that man. And his heart is contrite and broken. And he writes Psalms 51. But we need this. Who told us? And if we go too far, we miss out on the beauty and the goodness, the restorative nature of God who desires to bring things to our attention that we might see things from his perspective. Remember, God asked Adam three questions. Uh, He says, where are you? Um, Who told you? And what is this that you have done? I think sometimes if we go so far into a ditch, we don't like this question, but this question is so important. So what is it? The second question for you is, what is this for? What is it for? And I, I, I kind of illuminated a few of those things. This is not punitive. It is restorative. God wants to build us up that we might have a realization that produces established identity and deep intimacy and deep awareness of God's um, beauty and his goodness. So here's what it's for. One of the things that godly shame brings to us is remorse. We need remorse, a feeling of sadness that we are out of harmony, that we are out of tune, out of alignment for how we've been created and the beauty and the glory and the shalom that we're to bring to this earth. There is a deep work of sorrow where we begin to express grief or loss over some of our choices, some of our decisions. It is an awareness to pain that we have caused, disruption, fracturing. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin. It results in salvation, wholeness, There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, it results in spiritual death, disconnection. God created us to be connected. He created us to be confident in who he made us to be. It's the same story of the younger brother in Luke 15. He finally comes to his senses. He says to himself at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home, listen to his language, to my father. And I'll say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. There was an awakening awareness of unworthiness in him, but instead of running and hiding, he says, I'll go back to my father. This is the work of remorse and repentance in our heart. He goes back and he says, communicates clearly, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And what happens? The father responds in compassion, in love, in goodness, because this is how God speaks, talks. This is his character. This is his nature. But there is a visceral reality to something that we must embrace that causes our hearts to see the error of our ways. The second thing that it's for is repentance. Not just I'm sorry. When it comes to an understanding of what God desires, his goal is not an apology to escape consequences. The goal of repentance is to repair the relationship. It's like with my wife. My wife doesn't want to know or just hear from me that I'm sorry. She wants to know that I know why I'm sorry, right? understand? Like, she wants to know the details, and so a heartfelt, repentant heart is to say, when I did this, this is how I made you feel. This is what occurred. And this is what God is desiring to bring to our attention, that when we err, we aren't just trying to escape consequences, but that we're hungry to see from his perspective. And can I tell you that his perspective and his vantage point is so much more beautiful than yours? so much more beautiful than what you can see. And he desires that we would see that. 
uh, as it pertains to the things that make us feel like we're, we're out of tune, we're out of alignment. Um, the, the, again, the younger brother said, I, I am no, he said, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. I mean, repentance is the ruthless dismantling of old ways of seeing and thinking. And it's so important so that we can be diligent and vigilant in building new ones, new ways of seeing how God desires for us to see. This is why Jesus said that his mission in Isaiah 61 was to open the eyes of the blind, to heal the brokenhearted. This relational understanding, this need for sons to see shame accurately is so important to the beauty of the character and nature of God. And one of the last things that it does is it brings restoration. It indicts us as sinners, but then it confirms we're children and heirs of God because of our union with Christ. This is Romans 8, 17. Since we are his children, we're his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we're heirs of God's glory. You can, you can take this to the bank. When you error, when you miss the mark, when there is sin, you can expect the painful emotion that you have fallen short of an ideal. It has an intended result. It has a, an awakening. It is restoration. It is sanctification. God desires to awaken, to bring alive the beauty for which you were created. That's why he's described in Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant who will bear your iniquity. You're not left in the heaviness of your error, but you have the hope of the reality of the relationship to take that weight, thank God, and to place that onto the one who took all of your weight and nailed that to the cross. But some would say that, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I, you know, all my sin has been eradicated because of, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And while that's true, we also know that it's true for every one of us in here because we've heard so many testimonies like before I was saved, I did all this stuff. Now after I'm saved, you know, everything's perfect. That's just not reality. Those of us who have walked with the Lord understand that sin nature is still on the loose. And we are being sanctified. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And after the fall, the affections of humanity were misplaced on wrong objects. And in sanctification, they are turned into the, the order and beauty and harmony uh, the grief is placed on sin, the love on God, the joy on heaven. That's why we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, not by our box checking, not our compliance. It produces clarity, understanding. It produces in us, church, humility, giving up our view and opinion for God's view and opinion. This battle for sanctification, this battle for the holiness that we have been given in Christ Jesus, it's fought at the level of what we love, what we cherish, and what we delight in. It's fought at that level. And God is working because idolatry is so on the loose. It's just intimacy with an image. Appearance, status, possessions, it's there. You know, uh, the opposite sex, same sex, it's an idol. Intimacy with an image, and God comes so sweetly, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to be able to transform and to renew our minds, to give us grace, truth, and time to be able to fully develop, to fully mature into the image of Christ. Aren't you grateful for the Holy Spirit? The greatest teacher, the greatest teacher that, that we have. Now, I was reading this uh, recently, that right now, if, if I wanted to get a golf lesson from Phil Mickelson uh, for one day, uh, it would just be just the, the, the inexpensive rate of $250,000. So $250,000. Now imagine I have that much money, and I pay $250,000 to have Phil Mickelson come and give me a golf lesson. And you can imagine if uh, we're spending the day together, and he says, hey, I want to take a look at your swing. I say, great. So I grab the club, take a swing, and imagine... I've paid this massive expense, and Phil's like, hey, can I, can I tell you something about your, your grip there? 
And if I was to stand back and be like, huh, who asked you? What, what right do you have to invade my world? I don't need your instruction. It'd be ridiculous. It'd be ridiculous. But how many of you understand the expense that was paid so that you could have a comforter, an advocate, a teacher, a guide who would come, the greatest teacher, to be able to give you instruction, to be able to give you perspective, the greatest coach in the cosmos. We have him, and we need him to be able to help us fully develop and do everything that God desires us to be. And the last thing is this, what does it look like? What does it look like? Now, Nehemiah 1, 2 through 7, you can go back and read this, but Nehemiah has this moment where he, his heart is heavy and his brothers uh, come to visit him, other men, they arrive and they tell him that the Israelites have returned from captivity and he asks how things are going in Jerusalem and they tell him things aren't going well. There's great trouble and great disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem's torn down, gates have been destroyed by fire. When he heard this, listen, this is what it looks like. He sat down and wept. In fact, for days he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed to the God of heaven. And he opened up his heart. God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. And he begins to confess. We've sinned against you. Even my own family and I have sinned. We've sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. This is, this is a glimpse. But last week, I, I had a transforming encounter with God. And I want to I share it with you because you, this is what it looks like. I, I began to feel the weight of ungodly shame and dishonor that men have shown women for generations. And, and a spirit of confession and repentance, it was weighty, it fell on me. It was full of love, void of condemnation. And I began to just feel this, this broken heart over society's dishonor of women. And God began to do some things. He began to repair some things in me. And so I prayed, I journaled, and I began to profess these words. And I just want you to hear them. I'm sorry for the way that men have abandoned women. To every little girl whose daddy was too busy at work to notice your play school art, for every dance recital that was missed because of needing to work late one more night, for every preacher's daughter whose father was out saving the world but didn't notice he was losing his own girl, I'm truly sorry. When the moment of battle rises and the dragon rears its ugly head, we were meant to fight, to do something. But we've been too silent, too passive, and we've left you to fight your own battle. We've left our adolescent girls to find out about their sexuality in the backseat of a boy's car rather than in the open conversation and sanctity of our homes. I'm sorry for our silence, that we haven't spoken to you more. And I'm sorry that we've been so unable to show our daughters affection. You wanted to roll in the grass, to ride on our shoulders, to feel the whiskers on our cheeks, and to sit in our laps for long stretches of time. But we've been uncomfortable with touch because we weren't taught it by our fathers. I want to say I'm sorry. For every little girl and every wife whose daddy or husband abandoned her for a bottle of alcohol. When you needed us, we just weren't there. I want to say that I'm sorry for every little girl or wife whose daddy or husband left home, didn't come back. You were the hidden treasure and we didn't know it. We thought we could find it at the end of the rainbow over some distant horizon, but the rainbow had no end. and There was no other treasure and for too many of us, it's now too late. I'm sorry for the ways we've used you for our advantage. No, I'm not the child molester, nor the rapist, nor the man sitting at the bar watching you dance around a pole, nor the John who is your last customer. I have not, by the grace of God, been that man. But what man in our midst has not sinned by looking upon a woman as an object rather than a person, seeking validation from you because we've lacked a deep understanding of God's value for us? I feel the whole weight of the unthinkable ways that we have used women to momentarily soothe our deep inward shame. May I tell you, if we could be honest with ourselves, with God and with you, how most men really feel, we marvel at who you are. 
You've discernment that we don't have. You notice tiny, subtle details when we see nothing at all. We marvel at the way you make relationships, and we secretly long to be able to find friends the way you do. We're amazed at the way you pray, the way you sing, the way you serve, the way you smile, the way you laugh, the way you cry. We're amazed at how deeply you feel things, how easily you express those feelings. We're amazed at how multidimensional you are, interweaving softness and strength, how you've endured so much, persevered through so much, and you've celebrated so much. Every woman is a rose, lovely and mysterious, fragrant, meant to be handled with care. Its piercing thorns greet only those who recklessly grab the stem without taking time to appreciate its total beauty. The most beautiful of flowers, the sweetest of fragrance, and the costliest in the florist shop. You are beautiful from the moment of the first bud, but your beauty unfolds a petal at a time as you blossom and grow. Today we honor you. We don't seek to own you, to use you, to sell you, or control you, but to admire you and to thank you. This is what it looks like when God awakens our heart to an error in our ways. It takes bravery and courage to be able to look at things that we don't want to look at, to be able to get a revelation, an awareness of what God wants to show us. This is a beautiful gift that we must accept into our hearts and discover its transforming power. We were created to display honor and goodness and beauty to the world. And in order to do so, sons must see shame accurately. Yes, God is the one who takes our iniquity and he takes our burden. But in my own life, I have walked a path of repentance because I have erred. I have messed up. And in those moments of deep weight, I felt the voice of God speak after I had felt how I had hurt myself and others, the complexity of it. And God, in that moment, came and spoke so sweetly, sweetly to me. I have plan A for your life. But I walked that path, much like the younger brother. And I just want to invite us for a moment, just, just to be silent, to remember uh, and, and take time to look at how David, who had a heart after God, approached things. In Psalms 139, one of our favorite psalms, right, where we hear all the beautiful things about how precious are your thoughts towards me, says the Lord. They, they outnumber the grains of sand, but we forget how he starts. In verse 1, he says, O Lord, you have examined my heart, and you know everything about me. Are you scared? Does that cause you to get a little, uh, you know, just anxious? And then he ends the psalm, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. Anything that offends you. See, David had erred, just like you and just like me. But he understood the character and the nature of God. He understood that the greatest part of this father-son, father-child relationship is to be able to bring these things and not take on how the enemy has contaminated shame to make us hide and to cower from God, but indeed to bring everything to him and allow him to sit with us, put his hand on our shoulder, comfort us, and give us perspective, and allow us to understand that we're heirs, we're joint heirs with Christ, and everything that he says about us is true, and it's possible that just in these, these moments that we need to open up our hearts to the areas that God wants to highlight for us, the division, the quarrels, the pettiness, the, the uh, sexual immorality, the things that are outside of what God desires for us. And so I'm just going to invite our altar ministry team to come down to the front tonight. And we're just going gonna to do this together. Is we're just going to have uh, just a moment um, for us to just allow God to just speak into our lives. Invite the Holy Spirit to open up our hearts to say, 
God, would you come? Would you show me anything that is out of tune? Would you show me anything that I have not presented to you? Yes, thank you that the consequences of these errors are forgiven, but the reality is, have I seen how you see? Am I aware of what you're aware of so that I might grow, so that I might transform into your image? So would you just take a moment right where you are, just close your eyes, just open your hearts. Aaron's just gonna sing over you. And just I pray for just a spirit of confession, a spirit of repentance in this moment. God would mold us and shape us in his goodness and his love and his affection and in his correction that provides protection for our lives, that we might come before him and see what he desires for us to see. Take a moment, just open your hearts. Here I stand before you now As honestly as I know how I'm broken by the days gone by Spirit help my soul to rise I try my best but still I fail Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.